If you have a Bible, if you could turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2, and we're beginning uh, verse 12. It's Revelation 2, and beginning at verse 12. If you haven't got a Bible with you, the words are on the screen, so you can look on them as I read. Uh, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also have some, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that uh, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you might open your word to us this morning and that we might understand what it has to say to us, that you might speak to us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We might just have the slides begin. Sometimes I think when we look at stuff in the book of Revelation, it's a bit like um, playing a game of Cluedo, which one family might understand right at the moment, where you kind of decipher things, you look for clues to try to work out um, what a solution might be to a problem. Uh, there's always this, these uh, terms that are a little unfamiliar to us, but we're probably very familiar to those who will have received the letter in the first place. Uh, But that said, the basic message, the underlying point, is generally very clear. We can work it out even if we don't know all the most significant, or all the uh, the specifics of the details that are there, all the allusions to things that were pertinent at the time. So as we uh, work through this uh, this passage this morning, we'll highlight some of those uh, little bits and pieces that we have, some of those clues and see what we come up with. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here we have a map of, of the Roman province of Asia and the location of Pergamon, which you'll be able to see there to the northern part. Uh, which is now part of modern Turkey. Uh, In ancient times, Pergamon was regarded as one of the uh, most significant cities of of Asia, perhaps one of the greatest cities of Asia. It was the the capital of the Seleucid Empire in the sort of BC period, and then in 133 BC became the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was considered a home of great culture. Uh, It did, in fact, house the second largest library in the ancient world after the very famous library of Alexandria. It had something like 200,000 volumes, which is a huge amount given that every book had to be hand copied. But as we think about uh, this particular 
Church, we find that it is addressed by the sword-wielding risen Christ. Verse 12 says, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, the two-edged sword was a sword used by a Roman soldier, a Roman foot soldier in particular, in battle. But it was also employed as a symbol of Roman justice. And in the Roman Empire, there were two classes of Roman governor. Those who had the ius gladii, that is the right of the sword, and those who didn't. Those who had the right, that is the right of the sword, had the power to summarily execute. For them, it was an instrument of instant judgment. The fact that Christ is depicted here as having the sharp two-edged sword, which Revelation 1 tells us emanates from his mouth, suggests that he is confronting an enemy and ready to mete out justice. And we know from uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that the, word, that the Spirit is the Word of God. Furthermore, in uh, Hebrews 4, many of you be very familiar with these words, we read, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sights, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, where God condemns false prophets, he reminds us of the power of God's word. Is not the word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And we're all probably familiar with the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus in, uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan uh, misuses the word of God to try to test Jesus out, to tempt him to do wrong. And Jesus responds each time with the words, it is written. And then ultimately he says, in order to dismiss Satan from his presence, he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. You see, the word of God is supremely powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. After all, God spoke the universe into existence, and ultimately he will pronounce words of blessing or eternal punishment or judgment upon all of us. So why is it that it is the sword-wielding risen Christ who addresses the church in Pergamon? Well, we find the answer really in, in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How would you understand that? What does it mean, where Satan's throne is? Well, Pergamon was a centre of pagan worship in the ancient world. Among the many temples in Pergamon were the temples of Athena, a goddess of war, um, the altar of Zeus, who was the ruler over gods and mankind, you know, the, the head of the gods and Olympus. Uh, and we can see how grand a scale this must have been in real life. In fact, there's a, uh, a reconstruction uh, in Berlin's Pergamum Museum. Uh, we can see the, uh, the great altar of Zeus and Athena. And around the base, uh, the Greek gods defeating the barbarian giants. So it would be an impressive thing. It was raised high in a hill so people would look up to it and move toward it. Pergamon was also uh, a centre to which people came for medical treatment and healing. It was kind of like a health spa of its time. 
And the god of healing, of course, uh, was Asclepius, which many of us will know, who's commonly depicted holding a staff around which is wrapped a serpent, still often used as a symbol for medical practice today, which makes us wonder about medical practice. Um, but since a serpent is such a potent symbol in the Bible, featuring in both Genesis and in Revelation as a manifestation of the devil, some commentators have, have thought that the prominence of Asclepius in Pergamon to be one of the reasons, maybe the main reason, why the place is said to be Satan's throne. Another uh, possibility is, and perhaps the uh, reason most favoured by the majority of commentators, is that Pergamon was the centre of the imperial cult in the, in the eastern part of the empire. It was in fact the first Asian city to have a temple dedicated to a Caesar. And it was uh, dedicated in 29 BC by Augustus Caesar to his adopted father, uh, Julius Caesar, and his actual uncle. And although the people of the, the Roman Empire, citizens and subjects alike, were allowed to worship any gods they pleased, they were also required to participate in public religious events and acknowledge the lordship of Caesar as the embodiment of the spirit of Rome. In fact, citizens could be called upon at any time, sometimes annually, to say, Caesar is lord and to uh, burn a pinch of incense in honour of Caesar. Now, of course, no Christian could ever do that because Christians have one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that one Lord will brook no rivals. So Pergamum uh, can't be a place where it was easy for Christians to live. The opposition was very real. So it's in this difficult and dangerous context that Jesus offers um, or says that he is the sword-wielding Christ but he also offers a word of commendation. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The Christians in Pergamum are commended for remaining faithful where they are. In a place where pagan religion was the norm, where emperor worship was required, in such a place, conflict necessarily would arise. The sentence begins with the word, yet. And despite the strong opposition, the church at Pergamon did not deny Christ. Furthermore, they remained faithful even in the most threatening of circumstances, the martyrdom of Antipas. Now, there's no genuinely reliable information concerning Antipas apart from this passage. That doesn't really matter in a sense. What matters is that Christians remain faithful to Christ even when such faithfulness might cost them their lives. I'm reminded of Paul's words to, uh, to the church in Corinth in his second letter to that church in uh, chapter 4 where he writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being rewarded day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in a very real way, the Christians, that is us, who live in the 21st century, have similar kinds of experiences as those who lived in the first century. In some parts of the world, they're probably worse. Martyrdom is an everyday reality. Intimidation is common and increasing. To prove that in your own um, everyday context in Australia, just post something that's pro-Christian uh, in Facebook and wait for the vitriol. It'll come in a second. We only need to look at things like the latest reports published by groups like Open Doors or the Barnabas Fund to know of the terrible sufferings that Christians have to endure in a variety of parts of the world. I'll just read a couple of headlines from the Barnabas Fund news report from the 15th of January this year. These are just the headlines. At least seven Christians killed as Boko Haram strikes villages in far north Cameroon. Nigerian Christian bride and friends murdered in jihadi ambush on the way to a wedding. Muslim men abduct, assault and rob a Norwegian street preacher, this is in Norway, demand he convert to Islam or be killed. And these represent the kinds of treatments that many Christians in many parts of the world experience on a daily basis. Even in Australia, intimidatory tactics are being employed against Christians as means to silence Christian involvement in debate in the public square. We need only think of the treatment of uh, Israel Folau in recent times for simply posting a tweet that some sectors of the Australian community uh, disapproved of. And even though he, this Israel Folau has now come to an agreement with Rugby Australia, it's not over for him. The gay activist and serial litigator Gary Burns has used New South Wales anti-vilification legislation to make a complaint against Israel Folau, accusing him of vilifying homosexuals by uttering hate speech. This complaint's now been accepted and therefore it must be taken further. It will go on to arbitration. If that fails, then it goes to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal for a legal decision. And if it goes that far and the decision is against uh, Israel Folau, it could go further and eventually end up in the High Court, uh, all because of the way the uh, state vilification laws are framed. So the aim of a complaint of this kind, and we'll know this from our everyday experience, is not necessarily to win. Right? It's not necessarily to win, it is to intimidate. In a sense, the punishment suffered by the accused person is the process itself. Apart from being draining and emotionally taxing, it can easily send a person bankrupt, even if they're found innocent and completely exonerated. See, there is no redress in such a situation. The idea is to sue people into silence. So what do we do? Revelation 2 says, I know where you live. It doesn't say, pick, pack up and move, because it's too dangerous there. As Christians, we're called upon to remain faithful to Christ, to honour his name, even when an antipas is martyred, even when our neighbours are abducted or murdered, or even when our fellow believers are sued. I'll quote just briefly from a, um, uh, a recent uh, Barnabas Fund news editorial. It says, as Christians, we know there is a model for this kind of love, that is a selfless love for our enemies. 
For tense times and hard hearts, the Lord Jesus has already offered the perfect solution. Jesus' greatest commands to us are to love God with all our hearts and out of this to love our neighbours as ourselves. God, who is love, wants us to love our neighbours who live alongside us, whether next door or across a distant border, with the same agape, the self-sacrificing love he has for us. In Greek, agape carries the thought of goodwill to others, irrespective of their origins or likeness to ourselves. Jesus made this clear in his parable of the Good Samaritan. Christians must do good to all, says his word, especially to our fellow believers. Much easier said than done, I know, but this is the message that Christ gives to us. See, times of accusation and blame can stir up hate. It's no accident that the name Satan has the dual meanings of accuser and adversary. In our work supporting, this is the Barnabas Fund again, in our work supporting the persecuted church around the world, Barnabas Fund encounters the hatred that Christians are so often being shown. We do not shy away from truthfully reporting discrimination and persecution wherever it's occurring, but Barnabas continues to stand for love, not hate, and Christ's righteousness, truth, and justice. The letter then moves on from commendation to a matter of concern. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now many of us will be familiar with uh, the account in Numbers 22 and the few chapters after that when Balak, king of the Moabites, hired Balaam, a prophet, who was believed to have sort of superpowers, um, to curse the people of Israel. But God, as you recall, intervened uh, using a donkey, and Balaam found that all he could do was utter blessings rather than curses. However, after that event, it seems he went on um, to advise another way of leading the people of Israel astray. And many of the Israelites fell for it. They weakly acquiesced to the worship of Baal and practiced the sensual delights such worship entailed. It is this that some, and I emphasize the word some, of the Christians are accused of doing, believing the teaching of false prophets, false teachers, and as a result, worshipping idols and engaging in immoral behaviour. Similarly, in the context of warning of the dangers of following uh, the false teaching of false prophets, Peter mentions the way of Balaam in chapter 2 of his second letter. They count it pleasure to, revere, uh, to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Some have also been persuaded by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nothing's really known about the content of their teaching. A lot of commentators guess at it. Uh, but given the statement and the context of Revelation chapter 2, their heresy was probably much the same as that associated with Balaam. Some have suggested that the Nicolaitans encouraged members of the Church of Pergamon to compromise by complying with the requirements of the imperial cult. Another possibility is that readers of this letter not so much are meant to identify specific heretics like leaders of such things, but to focus on the fact 
that some of their members have been led astray by false teaching. Uh, I wonder too whether even the meaning of the names Balaam and Nicolaus, where from which the Nicolaitans comes from, might be the key here. Balaam actually means swallower or devourer of people. And Nicolaus means conqueror of the people. In other words, the names Balaam and Nicolaitans may be being used to highlight the destructive impact of false teaching, almost like a code language. Now, whether this is a case or not, we can't be sure. What we can be certain about is that some members of the church accepted heretical teaching and chose the way of compromise, worshipping idols, engaging sexual, sexually immoral behaviour. In the first century, polytheism was the norm. Orgiastic worship was common. So it was probably not hard to understand that people would shift that way. We in the Western world, in Australia, could perhaps be similarly accused. In our culture, we have beliefs and practices that are considered the norm. And it's not too difficult to be caught up in them, thinking they're actually kind of okay. But what false teaching might some of us be deceived by? What are our idols or our false gods? It seems to me that perhaps the principal idol of modern Western society is, in fact, me. We've dressed it up in language that makes the worship of self sound noble and good. Personal autonomy has become our guiding motivation. Individual choice has become an end in itself. What I choose is good by virtue of the fact that I chose it. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations to, uh, to sort of highlight or demonstrate this. Um, do we have any Star Wars fans here? A couple. Any of you Star Wars fans not seen the latest one yet? Tough luck. Okay. Now, close your ears if you're one of those people. This could be a spoiler, but I'm going to give it anyway. So no listening for those who are Star Wars fans who haven't yet seen the film. In the latest of the Star Wars series... Um, it seems to me that J.J. Abrahams, the director, has really just bought into the current worldview. Star Wars fans will know that in the first films, the emphasis was on the Force. Now, there'll be a number of us, perhaps, who are old enough to have seen the very first, which is now number four, Star Wars from when it first came out. Would that be correct? If you've raised a yeah, few, okay, good. Uh, and you'll remember that the Force was within and could be accessed by those who somehow um, you know, linked to the Jedi. But the emphasis really on that kind of thing, this is a special power that people... It's like a, a, a divine spark within one. It was really reminiscent of the New Age movement of the time and uh, further reminiscent of ancient Gnosticism. But I think in the latest film, there is a subtle but significant shift in emphasis... In the early films, the emphasis is on the power of the force. In the latest film, the emphasis is on the individual who possesses the force. Rey, the final Jedi, is encouraged to delve within herself to find out who she truly is and to live and act accordingly with authenticity. So the notion of living authentically is automatically right. And that film promotes that idea. It goes further. Rey is actually a Palpatine. That is, by birth, she's one of the bad guys, potentially ruler of the Sith. At the end of the film, when Rey uh, is asked, 
who she is, she says that she is a Skywalker. She's not really a Skywalker. She chooses to identify as a Skywalker and infers that Luke and Leah, who are in fact brother and sister, are her parents. It's a bit sus, isn't it? <laughs> Thus, what she chooses to identify as becomes her reality. Isn't that what's happening now? And so I think J.J. Abrahams is really bought into that whole thing and playing to the culture of the time. He actually went on to say himself, when he was asked about such well, similar kinds of things, he says, one of the themes of the movie is that anyone could be anything regardless of where you're from. It's your destiny. It's that thing you feel, the thing you know is part of you somehow that you're haunted by. Is that your destiny? The idea that choices, there are things more powerful than blood, as Luke says, that feeling was an important thing to convey for us. So we find it in pop culture. Some of you may have uh, watched, I won't go into great detail about this because of time, but you may have seen uh, the Golden Globe Awards and Michelle Williams won, and she gave this wonderful speech about her choices. Everything is about my choices, and it's particularly her choices as a woman. Apparently she's now pregnant, she's made a choice that's the right time to have a baby, unlike other times when apparently she chose not to have babies. But it's all about her choice and her construction of her own life. Choice is supreme. And it seems to me that sometimes Christians can easily can sort of hop on the bandwagon of such things, you know, often uh, you know, sort of uh, rejecting the plain teaching of Scripture. We see a kind of slightly extreme example, I guess, in this one. This is uh, Adamstown Uniting Church from uh, Newcastle. Uh, you can see the rainbow steps. And it's on their website it says, if you've been to Adamstown lately, you will have seen our colourful new steps, painted as a message of welcome to the LGBTIQ community. As a congregation, we want to make a public statement about our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive church that celebrates the gifts of human diversity, creativity and justice-making. Me is the idol of our time. I have usurped the role of God. I can create myself in accordance with my authentic self. And anyone else ought to authenticate and celebrate my choices. And anyone who doesn't do this must be evil and warrant some form of sanction and punishment. Uh, Matt Fuller, in his book, Be True to Yourself, Why, do, why It Doesn't Mean What You Think it, uh, it Does, has written this. Uh, what we're actually saying is that for most people, be true to, your, to self means express your own beliefs and practices as long as they conform to a higher cultural truth. Or, to put it simply, uh, we, want you to believe, uh, sorry, we want you to be true to yourself as long as your truth is acceptable to us. With views and practices that we like, we say, be true to yourself and don't worry what anyone else thinks. With views and practices that we think are wrong, we say, your views are horrible, you need to change. So the great cry of our age comes with a significant caveat. You must be true to yourself as long as I don't dislike your views and behaviour. Seems to me that's kind of where we're at. There's much more we could um, elaborate upon there, but we won't. But you can think it through yourselves. So what do we do with this? It says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So there's a way back. 
Repentance. Repent. See, God is not reluctant to forgive. 1 John 1, 9, well-known passage, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse from all unrighteousness. But for those who are unwilling to repent, the risen Christ says that he will war against them with the sword of my mouth. As Jesus said in the presence of Pharisees in John chapter 12, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. We see in um, verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a, a white stone with a new name written on it on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers is given some of the hidden manna and a white stone with this new name written on it. Now manna, as we know, was the bread from heaven, Exodus chapter 16. It was given by God to the people of Israel to sustain them in the wilderness. Some of that manna was, the, manna was then preserved in a golden urn. It's kept in the tabernacle. Jesus, as we know in, uh, in John chapter 6, says that he is the bread from God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So while there are those who have turned to idols uh, to, to get to eat the food offered to those idols, those who conquer get to feast on the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, says Jesus, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the hidden manna is certainly Jesus. We partake in him. But the white stone, well, in the ancient world, a white stone was a ballot of approval or acquittal in a court case. It was a token of admission. So it is here, approved by the risen Christ, acquitted by the final, uh, at the final judgment and admitted into the celestial city. And the white stone, it says, bore a new name. Now, in ancient times, it was, it was common to carry an amulet or a charm, sometimes just a pebble. And on it was written a sacred name, a name of a god. And this gave the bearer the power to call on that god in times of trouble and to have some mastery over demons. If no one else knew the name, that name written on that stone, the charm was thought to be even more powerful through its secrecy. This might be something of the background to understanding what the white stone is about may be helpful in uh, helping us to understand it. See, the pagans trust in superstitious charms, but the Christian is assured of God's approval and acceptance. And even more, God knows each of his children by name. We're not some undifferentiated mass. The name known only to the recipient indicates the uniqueness of each individual before God and the distinctiveness uh, of the interpersonal relationship of each of us with him. We read something of this in Isaiah chapter 62, where it says, you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will give. So this letter to the church in Pergamum carries a warning, but it's also wonderfully encouraging. It's easy for us to identify with their plight and, and to be encouraged by the example of most of those, most that is the ones who have conquered. Satan, we know, is called the prince of the power of the air, and we were once numbered among the sons of disobedience. But God knows where we live. And what has he done? He's done something that offers us great assurance. In John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory. Glory is the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we go out to the world, just remember, God knows where we live, and he is with us. He has entered the world. He has brought us into new life. We're able to feast on the bread of that life, the life that is Jesus. He has granted us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower and lead us day by day. As we go into the world, remember, God knows where we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know where we live and that you walk with us in that. Father, we thank you for the way in which you bring us encouragement and even warning. And Father, we pray as we go into the, uh, into the workaday world this coming week that we might know your presence with us and we might be able to share something of the wonders of all that the bread of life grants to us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.